This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. From Slate. All right, Hi-Fi Nation for Slate Plus. Barry Lamb, I'm sitting here with Stephen Metcalf of Slate's Culture Gap Fest. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Barry. Uh, so we are going to be talking, I'm not actually in this episode very much, but I thought that for our Slate Plus listeners, we'd talk about some of the issues that arose that we're thinking about from the issues. The Both philosophers who are on this episode who produced it are, one's a vegetarian, the other's vegan. Probably one of them is active in this vegan activist movement in Australia. And I had a conversation with him. This is David, David Kaloran. And he actually said to me, he thinks of people who continue to participate in the consumption of meat or various consumption of animal products in the industry. He actually saw them as in many ways morally worse than people who simply didn't participate in, you know, chattel slavery, but permitted it to continue. (laughs) And I got to say, it's not the first time that I've heard that argument. Mm -hmm. And it comes up every so often when I'm at a party or have dinner with a vegan. And I got to say, in my personal experience, this is the one issue where I have a very strong disconnect between how I feel about the issue or what I think about the issue philosophically and my own personal practices. And I'm sure a lot of people have this experience generally, but for this issue, I, you know, to be honest, I tend to find vegans insufferable. Mm -hmm. I would probably be really pissed off if they came in to a dinner and started yelling at me about the death on my plate. Uh, At the same time, not even having to watch the videos, just purely on the merits of the arguments, they have a point. They have a very good point, and I don't live by by my own reaction to those arguments. When you say that they have a point, it's I'm curious how that breaks down between uh, our sense of the um, moral status of animals and uh, the moral status of suffering uh, versus the fate of the planet in you know a time of climate crisis. I mean, is there is there a kind of shift in the actual consequences of meat eating as we've come to understand them? You know, given uh, deforestation and you know just the uh, energy intensity of growing protein, animal protein, um, you know, versus the cruelty of uh, how they're raised and slaughtered. All of it. I I, I actually genuinely feel the pull of all of that i what i don't i don't feel the pull of uh, some kind of intrinsic bad in um in killing animals so i don't think that native american hunting or 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 subsistence hunting or anything like that is something intrinsically bad when it comes to but when it comes to the way that we treat our factory animals and and raising individual animals for the purposes that we have them and the fate of the planet and the idea like this utilitarian idea that, okay, animal suffering counts for something. And so there's got to be a point at which Mm -hmm. the sheer amount of animal suffering has got to trump some interest of human beings. That's a big strong pull for me, right? Because the sheer scale of animal suffering in industrialized farming is, it's just just mind-boggling, right? I feel all of that, right? At the same time, I get really annoyed. (laughs) So what's annoying? Is it vegans? I mean, you know, Veganism is almost a byword for being a keeper of one's 
own moral purity in some sense with the desire to not taint oneself morally. And so there's a kind of piety to it that might be somewhat annoying. And, and you know, by implication, we're, you know, somehow uh, debasing ourselves and the planet by eating meat. But there's another way in which it might be annoying, and it fits in with the theme of the episode, which is whether or not the mask of civility ought to slip in order to confront people about the moral consequences of their choices um, and what feel like consumer choices that are undertaken in a kind of unthinking way actually ought to be made rational choices undertaken in a in an entirely mindful way, mindful to the consequences um, of them. And so annoyance is a strategic annoyance, an attempt to break through people's complacency and have them confront the consequences of their own actions, up to and including, you know, illegally filming, uh, uh, you know, inside a factory farm in order to demonstrate to, you know, unthinking consumers what the actual, you know, suffering is that's that's happening. But, you know, also including just kind of annoying comments at a dinner with a friend who, you know, notes what's on your plate. And, and I think it's the latter. The, the When it comes to individuals who are, I could see some people being annoyed with individuals just who are concerned with their own purity. Um, that, that doesn't bother me. In fact, that might be morally admirable. Mm-hmm. Um, I find people who sacrifice a lot for the sake of that to be admirable. I think it's the latter. And I think it's, it's I have to come to terms with what I think about the mask of civility. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I think about it. What do you think about it? Um, the, uh, the distinction that I thought was really interesting in the course of the episode was between a sort of Rawlsian liberal framework within which disobedience is civil. Yeah. Um, and um, the other philosopher whose name is Delmas, I yes, believe. that's right. Delmas, who seems to think that you have to, you, you have a moral obligation to break outside of the structures, existing structures of power. Um, and she talks about leaks, sabotage, guerrilla theater, vigilantism, monkey wrenching, public harassment. As a just uptight wasp, none yeah. of these things appeal to me. In some sense, I, I believe kind of in public decorum and yeah. the right to be left alone and prefer silence over noise. And um, the, the the sense, the, the, the kind of skin crawling that I undergo when I think of acts of public strategic public chaos. I don't know that bears any relationship to anything other than my own uptight temperament, though. And she might be right. If the structures of power are so inherently um, unjust, that the idea that there's a neutral framework within which you can bring your complaints to public attention in order to change the world is, 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 um, is nonsense. The neutral framework itself is so much a product of and a perpetuator of the injustice you're trying to obviate, you have to break it, um, trash it, vandalize it, uh, publicly execrate it and desecrate it, or change is just impossible. Are you a Rawlsian on these issues? or a- I have this temperament, and it's got to be... <laughs> Sometimes I think a lot of my own orientation and temperament comes from being a fan of Star Trek The Next Generation, which is a very enlightenment show. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes from an underlying faith in the effectiveness of rational discourse. And it's not it's it's gotta be a faith because it's it's not like people were thinking about testing it empirically and focus groups and, and, and populations and historically speaking, I doubt you're gonna find that rational discourse was the uh, the most effective thing in affecting social change from whatever, from feudalism to, to contemporary capitalism. 
But something about me still has that kind of faith. Yeah. And I think that, I think it's going to take a lot more to shake that kind of faith in me in the, in the, um, and, and I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's faith in the, its effectiveness or, you know, call it something like religious conviction in its sanctity or something like that. Uh, I, I have to come to terms with how I think about it because when it comes to my, my feeling, and I'm not a wasp, right? <laughs> my feeling about it is just like you. Um, I think like Rawls, civil disobedience, in the, even in the Rawlsian sense, is like a last resort. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for Rawls, uncivil disobedience is never a resort. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly, yeah. And, um, and it, that has to take place on the assumption that rational discourse will win when went out you know i think of barack obama when 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 i think of this kind of orientation except that towards the end of his administration and the rise of this one i think he started questioning these kinds of things too mm-hmm. yeah. oh i'm just curious what you make of the relationship between the moral justness of a cause and the tactics used to pursue it so you know we might be talking about you know, veganism in an age of climate change, you know, has a, at least an aura of uh, sensibility and nobility to it, to a degree. But what if the tactics that you and I might countenance in the cause of a, you know, in pursuing a, 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 a cause whose, you know, basis we find just versus one that we find completely unjust or, or if in fact, possibly outrageous. So right. for example, yeah, anti-abortion, like targeting, you know, the, the concrete example from the episode is a, a animal rights activist in Australia, as people have listened to the episode, remember, right, you know, creates a map uh, on which are the effectively the home addresses of these farmers because they live on the, on the properties on which they raise and slaughter animals. And there could be an implicit threat of not just activism, but possibly violence. This is this is painfully reminiscent of the um, anti-abortion tactics used in the United States to harass and intimidate doctors out of providing uh, abortion services. And at that point, we're, we're, we're likely to think of these tactics as, comp- as themselves morally outrageous, yeah. right? So how bendy is the framework within which we think of um, acceptable and unacceptable tactics, right? I mean, you know, it seems to me if you go in the direction of Delmas, right, you're countenancing tactics out of an enormous confidence in your interpretation of what counts as a structural discrepancy in power that then licenses an enormous amount of really outrageously uncivil behavior. You'd better be fucking right you're the committer of the moral outrage, right? Isn't the whole point of a liberal framework is that within it, it accounts for these possibilities. Um, And that's why you need these supposedly neutral principles of behavior within which disobedience can happen. I don't know, what would would you call it? Legally or within a kind of a a liberal, rational, humanistic? Yeah, Yeah. it wouldn't be legally, but it would be like within the range of what we consider civil and within the range of Rawlsian civility or something like that. Right, a framework that takes into account the fact that the law might be wrong, right? And and that the law requires, or or that that, that both the law and the decorum and civility that enforces the law might be morally outrageous there's a larger framework within which conscience can 
express itself in in the in the in the cause of change. Um, you know, once you break outside of that, you better be really sure that because what's going to judge you eventually, right, is history. Yeah, and what's interesting is Del Moss, who's not the utilitarian, thinks there are just there's justification to break out of that, and so do utilitarians, right? In principle, mm-hmm. like right. utilitarians are they're only going to think that tactics are prohibited because it doesn't work. But insofar as it does, you know, that things are going to be all right. It's really within this liberal framework that we have these constraints. And and I think it's absolutely true, and we've seen that pretty clearly in recent years, that individual judgments about this thing are pretty awful. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, yeah. you know, you know, taking a knee being an uncivil act or something like sure. that is uh, it was a real argument, right? And, 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 you know, had to do with some imagined cause that they thought was unjust. I think that there is, there is this general idea, like in philosophy and, and, and everywhere, let's see how far I can go with this. If I have to cut it all out, I'll cut it all out. But the idea that, um, that you know, there are these re- like moral realists. There is a thing called justice, yeah. right? And whatever that thing is, there is going to be a set of causes that are in fact just. Humans may or may not be very good at determining that, but those are the kinds of things that determine the justice of the tactics. I think there are people who I think Delmas has to be one of them who strongly yes. adhere to the idea that, look, if there are things that are in fact just, whatever those conditions are, just about anything can be the kind of thing that can um, that can be a, a a tactic towards that kind of that kind of cause, um, and then there are others who you know are not quite as realistic about it, right? Like justice has got to be this thing that's constantly like negotiated and it's constrained by human abilities to yeah to 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 make the right kind of judgments about these kinds of things, and that's and if you're if you're of that generally more skeptical orientation, then you're going to want a set of rules that everybody has to play by. And yeah, I mean, that's going to place civility constraints on the causes that we want mm-hmm. uncivil action, you know, like in the current political landscape. Absent something like a Rawlsian or liberal framework within which to settle these disputes, how do you how do you have any principled way of distinguishing between um, a moral hero and a terrorist, for example, right? I mean, to ground the argument a little bit, I want to just before we finish, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about. I know you're an empiricist, right? Generally, uh, yeah. Or, or you yeah. like have an orientation? To, yeah, you, yeah. You have no as a yeah. as a as a you know humanities professor, yeah. you have no uh, aversion to yeah. to turning to empirical data. Yeah. Um, three three point five percent has a very special place in this episode That's that right. I thought was that I thought was fascinating. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so according to this data if 3.5% of the population happens to um, identify enough with your cause to engage in some form of activism, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be uncivil disobedience, right? It doesn't even have to be civil disobedience. It's just enough then the society will change in the direction of that cause. I mean, that's just an astonishing number. And, you know, so now you have to imagine, let's say your cause is, you know, assuming, assuming for the purposes of this argument, you could know this, your cause is at 3.3%, right? You're (laughs) just beneath the threshold where change might happen. 
you can very often do something that's just grotesque, right? It's kind of a grotesque form of public, the- public theater. It's, it's intended to be completely outrageous. It does, in fact, outrage people, and it drives an enormous amount of traffic to a video. Yeah. Some percentage of the people going to that video, maybe an overwhelming percentage of the people going to the video are going there to be disgusted at your, uh, uh, at your public display yeah. and your public incivility. But some small percentage um, actually suddenly is clicking on other links on your website and is suddenly... Uh, educating themselves uh, to the cause. And maybe, maybe, you know, you're at 3.3% and you do something appalling to the sensibility of the general public and you drive an immense amount of traffic to your website. That's going to bump you over three and a half percent or up to three point, the magic 3.5, 3.6% and actual social change is going to happen. I mean, what turns on whether or not that, that, um, gets you from 3.3 to 3.6 or from 3.3 to 3.1. I mean, let's say it drives you down to 2.8%. You know, how much do we allow the, our sense of intrinsic justness to wobble in the face of numbers like that? Because in some sense, we don't want to live in a, in a moral majoritarian universe. There has to be some notion of the intrinsic justness of causes. Or yeah, aren't that, we throwing yeah. ourselves to uh, the demos in uh, awkward ways? I, I, I'd love to bring in something from a little bit outside of the episode and yes. just hear your thoughts on it, sure. which is to what extent is this somewhat abstract, though I think with serious real-world consequences, conflict between, let's call it Rawlsian framework liberalism or you know uh, something along those lines derived from Rawls's theory of justice and an idea of, of civil disobedience versus you know, uh, a much starker confrontational style of, of, of truth, you know, flung in the face of civility and power. How much of that is a, a generational story? I mean, it seems like we're right now, at this current moment, there's a break in the dialogue between the old and the young, in which the old are still more centrist, more liberal. The social contract worked for baby boomers in a way that it hasn't really worked for certainly millennials and possibly Gen Xers. Um, And so, of course, they're liable to speak with the voice of kind of wisdom, quote unquote wisdom, um, you know, uh, which is just the disguise for complacency and having gotten theirs. And younger people are completely out of patience. Um, You know, their politics are way far to the left, but also their methods are, are significantly more revolutionary. I mean, every time I've had a discussion about what we're talking about today, it really breaks down to older people who believe in a, in some degree of public decorum and younger people who are like, screw that. A, we're battling fascism and B, there is no social contract currently in the United States that embraces young people, people under the age of 30. Yeah. Um, talk a bit, but a little bit about it. It's just There's a, a lot of generational that. conflict I, yeah. as, as a college professor. I mean, yeah. you must see this up close yeah, all abso- the time. Absolutely. I'm not, I don't know whether it's a generational conflict in, in the sense that, that it's unique to this generation, right? Mm-hmm. So it could be that it's unique to this generation, right? But it could be a generational conflict in the sense that, in general, the older generation is going to be less sympathetic to uncivil um, reactions than a younger generation. I would imagine the boomers thought they were doing something quite uncivil uh, in, the si- sure in the 60s, <laughs> right? In a, yeah. in a way that, you know, millennials are probably just say, oh, God, that was, you know, 
like countercultural, but at countercapitalism and so on. So, I, so I don't know that. I, that I don't know. But it is absolutely true that amongst the younger generation, uh, millennials and young, younger, right? So the generations that I've taught, I basically taught the entire millennial generation, and oh, then wow. now the younger one, right? Yeah. If you think about it, I've been teaching for about thirteen years, and um, and what I have seen is a um, yeah, the, uh, no real respect for um, civility and calls for civility, uh, and um, openly in the context of public displays of 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 confrontation with the civil norms as a method for you know sh- you know the shouting down and the blocking the speakers and so on um that you hear that's a feature of a lot of the elite places that that that's there it's not but there's a lot of other young younger um younger people that are not as you know the activist community is not going to be the majority of mm-hmm. people right. and there's still a, a great number of people who are probably like me find a little bit of that those tactics insufferable on the other hand appreciative of the arguments mm-hmm. and recognizing um that the arguments have have pull and um and given that it is i get impatient <laughs> right i mean you get impatient i listen to you on state culture gap on the all all of the time what really has civility got us mm-hmm. right i mean there, there's a right. point there the plight of young people today they're broke they can't afford rent they they the jo- their jobs are all gig jobs they don't have any benefits and any semblance of trying to give them that is just pulled out from them mm-hmm. as in the case of the affordable care act and other things and um so you know i i have a lot more tolerance for uncivil reactions to that than I do say veganism, but you know, but I can be brought around to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the same time, I think we're both simpatico on, on our commitment to, you know, Rawlsian liberalism. I just don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah. What has it caught us? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there's this interesting c- consequence of young people feeling so shafted that they they want to give no credence to the system that's shafted them at all. So they vote in very low numbers. And we're now in a feedback loop where candidates are going to, candidates are going to reflect the interests of the people who are likely to go vote. And those tend to be older people. um, And, you know, therefore they're going to pursue policies that flatter and they're going to service the constituency that votes for them. And they're not going to service a constituency that doesn't. So that only produces more cynicism among young people. They only, you know, uh, opt out of the current system as it exists that much more. And it feeds and feeds and feeds and feeds to the point we're at now, which is very close to what feels like a breaking point. And it's this open question, like what degree of participation, you know, to what degree are young people going to participate in the 2020 election? They may abstain. You know, they may. Joe Biden is probably going to make them abstain. And like, where do you come out? I mean, I don't even know where to come out on that. If in an argument with a young person, I wouldn't know what to say to them. Yeah. I mean, I can't give them a reason for voting for. I mean, I I can't believe fully in a reason I would give them for voting for Joe Biden. But I also can't possibly imagine doing anything that allows authoritarian, the authoritarian moment to become more, you know, uh, lasting. All right. Could we end on a little bit about? Um since we're on the election and politics when we when when there were these things where people were saying to Mitch McConnell I don't want you to eat here or, or when these things sort of things came out you know some months ago and I'm sure some of this is going to continue to happen what was your honest reaction to that 
Well, I had sort of a weird reaction to it, which was, first of all, I wanted to open a restaurant so I could kick Stephen Miller out of it. You know, literally, I'd keep it open for all of eternity. And, you know, it's like waiting for the monkeys to write Hamlet. You know, if it took 800,000 consecutive lifetimes for my restaurant to have Stephen Miller walk into it, it would be worth it in order to say, get the F out of my restaurant. So a part of me just on a gut level was really sympathetic to the idea. But upon reflection, here's sort of where I came out. And I don't know whether this is arcane or self-serving, and maybe you can tell me. But I, I, very broadly speaking what we might call the left, again, painting with a very broad brush, has one culture, and what we might call the right has one politics. This has been true for, I think, most of my lifetime, basically 50 years. And to the degree the left breaks through it all, it, it breaks through it all, it's because they make an enormous set of compromises. I mean, really almost an self-annihilating, principle-annihilating compromises with the right. You know, so Clinton governs essentially to the right of Ronald Reagan, and that's somehow a victory for our side, which is in retrospect, somewhat preposterous. And, you know, my feeling is, well, how did we win culture? Well, just walk around New York City, walk around Omaha, Nebraska, right? Like the craft brewers and the artists of this whole culture of sort of craft production and consumption that everyone now loves that goes under a variety of names like farm to table. I mean, it's got a both rural and cosmopolitan aspect to it. This is a magnificent creation. And it's a cultural creation overwhelmingly of cosmopolitans. And cosmopolitans are strategically reviled by the political right as a way of whipping up a voter base and distracting attention from what the actual, to my mind, problems are with the country. These are private businesses. The right has a highly developed theory about our absolute right to dispose of our private properties we see fit. If I started a small artisanal business and I felt like it was an expression of the one area of the culture, the one type of power that was available to me expressively and, and substantively, and someone walked in who spent their, like Sarah Sanders walks in, who spends her daytime job, she made her disposable income that she now wants to use in my business, anathematizing me and everything I stand for, I bloody well think I do have the right to say, I'd like you to leave. And I also have to say, there, I, I think I mean, to me, it becomes almost an emotional issue. I mean, my sense is that someone like Stephen Miller, for example, is so beyond the Rawlsian framework. I mean, he himself has decided to operate so far outside of what I regard as the, you know, norms of a of a of a liberal slash humanist society. <clears throat> I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure what I owe him if I encounter him in a restaurant. I mean, I couldn't sit in a restaurant in which he was there without leaving and leaving in a way that demonstrated it was a, a just a small act of protest by way of saying, I'm not sure what level of comfort you really deserve, given the um, level of misery that you're and, 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 and humiliation you're visiting on um, very vulnerable people. So I think that's where I come out. Now, where you draw that line, I mean, it's not found in nature, right? I mean, it, you know, and, and but it's, you know, I tend to think the only thing that vindicates us, sadly, is is the future. I mean, as it looks back on what we did relative to what we were protesting and then forms a judgment. And I'm afraid that's kind of what human beings have, judgment of history. Thank you very much for listening to this Slate Plus-only bonus episode of Hi-Fi Nation, a companion to our episode called Uncivil Disobedience. 
Hi-Fi Nation is up to eight episodes this season on topics from criminal justice to free speech, gender, and democracy. And we have two more episodes coming up this season, so please subscribe to the Hi-Fi Nation feed. We also have two other seasons of timeless stories and topics. That's 28 episodes total for you to backlisten. Another new episode comes out in two weeks.